0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is Episode 62. We're going to talk about prints. That's P-R-I-N-T-C versus the United States. This is a 1997 US Supreme Court case that held some key components of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act were unconstitutional. It was a close case. It was a 5 4 opinion. The majority was written by Antonin Scalia. And the Supreme Court said that certain provisions of the Brady Act were unconstitutional because they were a violation of state sovereignty and the 10th Amendment. Now, the Supreme Court has a lot of great language in this case about the dual sovereignty system that we have here in the United States and how the federal government has limited powers. Those powers are enumerated specifically in Article 1, Section 8. Some great language about that. We're going to talk about some of it. Alas, too much of that great language about dual sovereignty, federalism, and the 10th Amendment goes completely unheeded in modern politics here in this country as always the law with dk williams is brought to you in collaboration with speakeasy ideas you can subscribe to the law and other speakeasy ideas podcasts through whatever your favorite podcast provider is whatever app you use and at speakeasyideas.com for this podcast you can go to speakeasyideas.com slash the law for all of them there and we're still in the process of getting some of the archives up on the site but it is an ongoing project and we will get that done follow this podcast on social media on twitter it's at the law dkw and on facebook.com slash the law with dk williams i'd love to hear from you if you're so inclined please check out the facebook page and twitter like review share comment all of that It helps get the message out into the world. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. And some quick self-promotion before we get into the Prince case. Goddess blog, which is stands for Supreme Court of the United States blog, picked up my interview with Colorado rogue elector Michael Baca, whose case concerning the Electoral College and whether or not electors, like he was, have any discretion to vote for president, which is the way it is in the Constitution. It's clearly contemplated by the framers and the Constitution that electors have discretion to vote as they wish, or as has become the case. They are merely rubber stamps and must vote how their state dictates. So his case may be heard by the Supreme Court this term. If you recall, we talked about his victory in the 10th Circuit in episode 48. We also talked about a contrasting opinion, actually the opposite result out of the Washington State Supreme Court in episode 49. And we discussed the last time the US Supreme Court dealt with the Electoral College at all in episode 50. And about 10 days ago, the interview with Michael Baca was in episode 60. So that's on speakeasyideas.com slash the law. You'll scroll down and see episode 60. So check that out. And when Scott's blog referenced the interview, of course, I tweeted that out, Facebooked it. So follow this podcast on social media for all the latest updates as they happen. So who are the named participants in this? Jay Prince is a named plaintiff. He's first, although there were two of them. Jay Prince is first. He was sheriff of Ravalli County, Montana. And I may not be pronouncing that right. Ravalli is R-A-V-A-L-L-I. I I guess it could be pronounced like the Spanish, Ravalli. But I'm going to guess go. I'm going to go with Ravalli in Montana. So he was a sheriff there. And Richard Mack, who was a sheriff of Graham County, Arizona. The defendants, of course was the United States of America. That is a government entity with which we are all all too familiar. The tally was five to four, and it invalidated that part or those parts of the Brady Bill that required state agents, in this case, chief law enforcement officers, and they use an acronym for that throughout the opinion, CLEO, C-L-E-O, and that part of the Brady Bill that required CLEOs, state agents, usually sheriffs, to implement federal policy. It was an unconstitutional, federal infringement on state sovereignty. That's what the majority held. Antonin Scalia wrote the opinion and he was appointed by Reagan. Of course, he died in office, Kind of unexpectedly in 2016 he was replaced by neil gorsuch joining scalia in the majority were chief justice william rehnquist he was nominated as chief justice in 86 by reagan he was an associate justice before that he got bumped up to the chief justice chair he was appointed as a regular associate justice in 72 by richard nixon now he died in office as well he was aged 80 And when he moved to Chief Justice, it was Scalia who was appointed to fill his associate seat. Also in the majority, Sandra Day O'Connor, she also wrote a separate concurrence. She was nominated by Reagan in 81, and she retired in 06, about 13 years ago. She's still alive at 89. In October of 2018, however, she did announce her effective retirement from public life after disclosing that she had been diagnosed with the early stages of Alzheimer's like dementia so that's sad but i know it does happen but she's still around also in the majority anthony kennedy nominated by reagan he retired in 18 he's still alive at 83 years old and brett kavanaugh Filled his spot upon Kennedy's retirement. Clarence Thomas, also in the majority, he wrote separately and his concurrence. is great. I'm going to mention a little bit of it at the end. He was appointed by Bush the Elder, H.W. Bush, in '91. He's still on the bench at age 71, so he's still young for the Supreme Court. The dissent, the main dissent, was written by John Paul Stevens, and it's a little known fact that his that he was named after half of the Beatles, John and Paul. He was nominated by Ford and he retired in 2010 and died last summer in April 19 at age 99. So joining the dissent was David Souter, who also wrote a separate dissent. He was nominated by Bush the Elder in 90 and he retired in 09 and he's still alive at 80 years old. He just did not want to be in the Supreme Court anymore. So think about this. Bush the Elder nominated Thomas, who's still there and is my favorite Supreme Court justice. And he also nominated Souter who wasn't as good. Now, Thomas is still going strong. Souter retired and was replaced by Sonia Sotomayor. Just imagine if H.W., Bush the Elder, had nominated someone, just say, between Souter and Thomas, and that seat was still held by someone closer to Thomas than Sotomayor, the Supreme Court's makeup would be completely different. So just imagine that if H.W. had done a better job in that appointment and not nominated David Souter. Read my lips. The suitor appointment was another thing H.W. did poorly. Also joining the dissent was R.B.G., Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1993 by Bill Clinton, and she's still on the bench at age 86. Stephen Breyer in the dissent also wrote a separate dissent, which was joined by Stevens. Breyer was nominated in 94 by Clinton and is still on the bench at 81. So looking at the partisan lines, five justice majority, written by Scalia, all nominated by Republicans. Two of the dissenters, however, were also nominated by Republicans and two by Democrats for whatever that is worth. So what are the facts? The Brady Bill, the complete name of which is the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, was named after James Brady. And I'm old enough to remember this. He was Reagan's press secretary and was shot, suffered permanent injury during the an attempted assassination of Reagan in 1981. It wasn't until... Twelve years later, however, in 1993, when the Brady Bill became an actual act, was signed into law by Clinton. The case is about this congressional gun control statute, but it's not a Second Amendment case. It's a Tenth Amendment case about federalism and what the feds can order the states to do and state actors to do, people that are state agents like sheriffs. And again, just to be clear, sheriffs work for the counties. They're elected by counties, but counties are subdivisions of the states, so in that regard, sheriffs are still state actors, at least for constitutional jurisprudence. Scalia frames the issue thusly. He wrote, the question presented in these cases, because they were another case that was consolidated, the question presented in these cases is whether certain interim provisions of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act commanding state and local law enforcement officers to conduct background checks on prospective handgun purchasers and to perform certain related tasks violate the Constitution. The Brady Bill was an amendment to the Gun Control Act of 1968, which was signed into law by LBJ. It established a detailed federal scheme governing the distribution of firearms. It prohibits, among many other categories of people, so long list, but among those are aliens, unlawfully present in the United States, and persons who have renounced their citizenship. Just want to mention those two out of all these different groups of people that it covers, because it said it was illegal for aliens unlawfully present in the United States to have a firearm. And of course, if Trump today in 2019, as opposed to LBJ in 1968, wanted to ban, quote, aliens unlawfully present in the US, don't you think the Democrats would reflexively oppose that provision? They would be like, how dare... Trump say illegal aliens can't have firearms. Why does he hate Muslims and Mexicans so much? That's the absurd state of modern political discourse. And as I'm recording this, the House voted earlier today to impeach Donald Trump. And I discussed the constitutional requirements of impeachment according to the Constitution in episode 54 of the law, where we discussed the Supreme Court case of Nixon versus United States. It's not Richard Nixon, but a federal judge with that same last name. So the other category of people that were banned from possessing firearms in this 1968 Gun Control Act were people who have renounced their citizenship. Citizenship. that really struck me that's really absurd because the bill of rights which is more properly called the bill of restrictions because it prohibits the government from infringing upon rights that you have that we all have as individuals but the bill of rights or restrictions more appropriately applies to the people the right of the people not the right of the citizens so renouncing your citizenship has no effect on your rights not in regards to what Congress can do to you. They cannot abridge your rights to bear arms because you're not a citizen. Now, as we've discussed, the word citizens is used in the Constitution, usually regarding requirements to run for federal office. Only a citizen can be in Congress or run for president. Elsewhere, the Constitution refers to the rights of the people. And that's what the Bill of Restrictions, Bill of Rights, does. It talks about the rights of the people. So they made a conscious decision to use the word citizens when they meant to. And they used the word people when they meant to do that. And it makes perfect sense because the founders believed in natural rights, rights that come to everyone by virtue of being a human, not by virtue of being a citizen. The Brady Act amended this gun control act, which at least they named it honestly, the gun control act. Now they wouldn't do that today, would they? They wouldn't be so honest. Today they'd name it the protection of puppies and kittens act or some such nonsense. But the Brady Act had all kinds of regulations that applied to the federal government, but it also had regulations that had requirements on these CLEOs, these chief law enforcement officers, usually sheriffs of counties. Hence the problem. Scalia wrote, CLEOs are required to perform certain duties under the Brady Act. When a CLEO receives the required notice of a proposed transfer from the firearms dealer, the CLEO must, quote, make a reasonable effort to ascertain Within five business days, whether receipt or possession would be in violation of the law, including research in whatever state and local record-keeping systems are available and in a national system designated by the attorney general. End quote. That's quoting the statute. The entire passage came from the opinion, though. Scalia goes on. If the Clio notifies a gun dealer that a prospective purchaser is ineligible to receive a handgun, he, the local law enforcement officer, must, upon request, provide the would-be purchaser with a written statement of the reasons for that determination. Moreover, if the chief local law enforcement officer does not discover any basis for objecting to the sale, he must, that's in the statute, he must destroy any records in his possession relating to the transfer of the firearm. Under a separate provision of the Gun Control Act, any person who knowingly violates the section of the Gun Control Act, amended by the Brady Act, shall be fined under this title, Imprisoned For not more than one year or both. So, sheriffs who fail to destroy these records are themselves subject to incarceration in federal prison. So, that's pretty heavy-handed federal mandate coming down on local sheriffs. Scalia goes on, It is apparent that the Brady Act purports to direct state law enforcement officers to participate in the administration of a federally enacted regulatory scheme. Petitioners here, which are the two sheriffs, Prince and Mac, object to being pressed into federal service and contend that congressional action compelling state officers to execute federal laws is unconstitutional. And that is what the Supreme Court held here. They agreed with the sheriffs. The government, in their briefs and in their appearance, argued that, historically, Congress has imposed obligations on state courts Now, the Supreme Court rejected that argument. Scalia wrote, We do not think the early statutes imposing obligations on state courts imply a power of Congress to impress the state executive into its service. Indeed, it can be argued that the numerousness of these statutes, contrasted with the utter lack of statutes imposing obligations on the state's executive, notwithstanding the attractiveness of that course to Congress, suggests and assumed absence of such power. He goes on and he says, we, the Supreme Court, have held that state legislatures are not subject to federal direction. Now, that seems obvious to me. Of course, they aren't. Otherwise, they would, the state legislatures, in effect, not exist. They couldn't do anything without permission of the federal government, which is in direct contradiction of the way this country's government was formed and set up. And if state legislatures are not so subject, to doing whatever Congress tells them they have to do, why would state executives be subject to whatever Congress tells them they have to do? They shouldn't be. Scalia then quotes the Federalist, which is a source referenced many times in this opinion, and he says, Hamilton's statement in the Federalist, number 36, that the federal government would, in some circumstances, do well to employ the state officers as much as possible and to attach them to the union by an accumulation of their emoluments. What he's saying there is to employ state officers, not mandate them do stuff. And accumulation of their emoluments means pay them to do stuff for us, well, us, the federal government. Scalia says, that surely suggests inducing state officers to come aboard to federal policy by paying them rather than merely commandeering their official services. So in essence, the feds can ask states and state agents to do things and states can agree to do those things. But this decision says feds cannot make states or state agents do anything. States cannot be commanded to do certain things. If state agents want to comply and want to cooperate, they may, but they cannot be ordered to do so because we have dual sovereignty in this country. The federal government has certain things it can do, everything else the states can do. And there's no provision for the federal government to order state governments to do such things. Scalia goes on some more from the Federalist Papers. He quotes Federalist number 44 quote, The election of the President and Senate will depend, in all cases, on the legislatures of the several states. That's the way it was. What that sentence is a reference to is the Electoral College, the election of the President will depend on the legislatures of the several states because the Electoral College, and again, we talked about this in the Michael Baca stuff, episode 48, 49, 50, and 60. The states have the power to designate their electors to vote for president. So that's what this says. Federalist number 44, the election of the president will depend on the legislatures of the several states. Also, the election of the Senate will depend on the legislatures of the several states. Because that's the way the Constitution was originally written until it was amended. Recall, it was a constitutional amendment that ended state legislature selection of U.S. senators and gave it to the populace of each state. A constitutional amendment was necessary to end that. Likewise, if anyone wants to abolish the Electoral College, which many people do, a constitutional amendment is necessary It harkens back to prohibition. There was a constitutional amendment granting Congress the authority to ban alcohol. Otherwise, there was no authority to do that. If alcohol was made in the state, sold in the state, and consumed in the state, there's nothing interstate about that, and that's the only thing Congress has power, authority, legitimate authority, to regulate under the Constitution. But then, somewhat 50 years later or so, Congress wants to ban all kinds of other drugs, and they ignore the necessity for an amendment. They just do it. And they were largely able to do that because of Wickard v. Filburn, another U.S. Supreme Court case that we discussed in episode five. And that's what people are trying to do now, trying to abolish the Electoral College without a constitutional amendment when they realized they had the honesty to have a constitutional amendment to end the state's selection of U.S. senators. Now they ignore that. Now, they, oh, we don't need to do that anymore. That's, so, that's such an outdated notion. Back to Prince. Scalia writes, If it was indeed Hamilton's view that the federal government could direct the officers of the states, that view has no clear support in Madison's writings or, as far as we are aware, elsewhere in text, history, or early commentary. The government, in print, trying to defend the Brady Act, points to a number of federal statutes enacted within the past few decades that require the participation of state or local officials in implementing federal regulatory schemes. Some of these are connected to federal funding measures and can perhaps be more accurately described as conditions upon the grant of federal funding than as mandates to the states. Not saying you have to lower the speed limit to 55 like they did decades ago. They didn't say you have to do that. They said if you want this money, then you have to do that. So states could have said no we're not going to do that. Now, there's plenty of problems with that whole carrot and stick approach where, hey, if you want this money, you have to do that, but that's another issue. Then the court gets into some good 10th Amendment discussions. Scalia wrote, "...it is incontestable that the Constitution established a system of dual sovereignty. Although the state surrendered many of their powers to the new federal government, they retained a residuary and inviolable sovereignty. This is a foundational notion." upon which our entire government rests. Those complaining about the Electoral College today are almost invariably ignorant of this foundation. They are almost always indignant that we don't elect the president by a national popular vote, as if it was not a key component of the Constitution and that without it, we would have no union. They're ignorant of that fact or indifferent. Either way, they're wrong. Again, if they want to change it, constitutional amendment, is the proper way to do it. Scalia goes on. Residual state sovereignty was also implicit, of course, in the Constitution's conferral upon Congress of not all governmental powers, but only discrete, enumerated ones. Article 1, Section 8 in the Constitution. That implication was rendered express by the 10th Amendment's assertion that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, which are listed in Article I, Section 8, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. At one point, this was accepted. It was known. Unfortunately, now, for whatever reason, that is widely considered passé and backwards. That's very unfortunate, because it is neither. Scalia goes on, the framers rejected the concept of a central government that would act upon and through the states and instead designed a system in which the state and federal governments would exercise concurrent authority over the people who were, in Hamilton's words, the only proper objects of government. So the states were not just the federal government divvied up into different governmental entities to administer what the federal government tells them to do like counties in a, within an actual state. Counties are subdivisions of the state, but the states are not political subdivisions of the federal government by design. The states are still sovereign, subject only to limited powers given to Congress. The great innovation, Scalia says, of this design was that our citizens would have two political capacities, one state and one federal, each protected from incursion by the other, if only. That protection has largely been eroded and the authority of states has been usurped by the federal government because states have allowed it to happen. The separation of the two spheres, the court goes on, is one of the Constitution's structural protections of liberty. Just as the separation and independence of the coordinate branches of the federal government, which is the legislative, executive, and judicial, serve to prevent the accumulation of excess power in any one branch, a healthy balance of power between the states and the federal government will reduce the risk of tyranny and abuse from either front. If only, again, states have allowed their authority to be usurped by the federal government without much of a fight. They should fight to get it back. But Dave, I hear, everyone knows that federal law is the supreme law of the land and it's superior to state and local laws. The feds rule. That is wrong. Federal law is supreme only when it concerns the limited and enumerated powers granted to it in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. So if Congress tries to pass a law or regulate some activity that is not among the enumerated powers, not only is that law not supreme, it is void which is what the Supreme Court finds here regarding provisions of the Brady Act. Scalia quotes Madison, The different governments, state and federal, will control each other at the same time that each will be controlled by itself. The power of the federal government would be augmented immeasurably if it were able to impress into its service and at no cost to itself the police officers of the 50 states. Indeed, Scalia is right on that. Unfortunately, that federal power was augmented immeasurably in Wickard versus Filburn, which we discussed in episode five. Then has a great line in reference to the four dissenters. He says, The dissent, of course, resorts to the last best hope of those who defend ultra virus congressional action, the necessary and proper clause. That is a beautiful sentence. And ultra virus is more Latin that lawyers use is ultra. Normal word, U-L-T-R-A, that we still use. Virus, not like a bug or a computer virus, but vires, V-I-R-E-S, ultra vires. Simply means beyond one's legal power or authority. If you act beyond that, you're acting ultra vires. And yes, most of the existing federal government is ultra vires. Back to the Federalist. Scalia writes, What destroys the dissent's Necessary and Proper Clause argument, however, is not the Tenth Amendment, but the Necessary and Proper Clause itself. When a law for carrying into execution the Commerce Clause violates the principle of state sovereignty, it is not a law proper for carrying into execution of the Commerce Clause, and is thus, in the words of the Federalist, merely an act of usurpation. That's beautiful. Wickard v. Filburn was one such usurpation, but it's a, a massive one, but there are so many other ones. And states have just rolled over and showed their belly to the feds. That needs to end. It needs to be reversed by the states. The feds are not going to just give it back. The states will have to take back their legitimate authority that has been usurped from them. The Supreme Court goes on, opinions of ours, the Supreme Court, have made clear that the federal government may not compel the states to implement, by legislation or executive action, federal regulatory programs. This court never has sanctioned explicitly a federal command to the states to promulgate and enforce laws and regulations. Scalia then uses a quote to the effect that feds cannot reduce the states to puppets of a ventriloquist Congress. Love the language. He goes on, it is an essential attribute of the state's retained sovereignty that they remain independent and autonomous within their proper sphere of authority. It is no more compatible with this independence and autonomy that their, the state officers, be dragooned into into administering federal law than it would be compatible with the independence and autonomy of the United States, that its officers be impressed into service for the execution of state laws. So state officers can't be dragooned by federal officers legitimately, nor vice versa. And of course, everybody understands that a state can't dragoon a federal agent into state law enforcement, and it goes both ways. Neither can do it to the other one. And that's what the holding of this prince versus U.S. case is. And any chance to use the word dragoon must be taken. And it simply means coerced into doing something. You're being dragooned. You're being coerced into doing it. Scalia goes on. Much of the Constitution is concerned with setting forth the form of our government, and the courts have traditionally invalidated measures Deviating from that form. The result may appear formalistic, in a given case, to partisans of the measure at issue, because such measures are typically the product of the era's perceived necessity. But the Constitution protects us from our own best intentions. It divides power among sovereigns and among branches of government precisely so that we may resist the temptation to concentrate power in one location as an expedient solution to the crisis of the day. Again, absolutely correct and almost universally ignored in the United States' modern political discourse. When states allow their sovereignty to be infringed like they have for a 100 years, they are acting unconstitutionally. The federal government may not compel the states to enact or administer a federal regulatory program. The mandatory obligation imposed on local law enforcement to perform a background check on prospective handgun purchasers plainly runs afoul of that rule. The federal government may neither issue directives requiring the states to address particular problems nor command the state's officers or those of their political subdivisions, counties, to administer or enforce a federal regulatory program. And so these provisions of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act are unconstitutional and invalid. This is a great example of people wanting to implement a policy, gun control, that they are very passionate about, but the Constitution is in their way. Therefore, they try to ignore it and hope they can get away with it. That's not proper. The Supreme Court should stop it. Legislature shouldn't do it. Executives should stop it by veto or whatever other power they might have. And states have to stop it when the federal government does the same thing. And Clarence Thomas' concurrence is right on point. He says, Accordingly, the federal government may act only where the Constitution authorizes it to do so. What a crazy radical idea. The document that formed our government means what it says. It lays out a structure and we're supposed to follow that structure. How insane is that? Words mean what they mean. He goes on, Thomas, the federal government's authority under the Commerce Clause, which merely allocates to Congress the power to regulate commerce among the several states, does not extend to the regulation of wholly intrastate point-of-sale transactions, like a gun sale. Thomas is correct. Wickard versus Filburn, episode 5, is absolutely wrong. Wickard was a wholesale repeal of Article 1, Section 8 in the Constitution by the judiciary at the request of the executive and condoned by Congress. All three branches of the federal government got together and usurped state power. And that's why states have to prevent that. They have to say no, no. And it goes to the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions of 1798, where states have the duty, well, the idea is, and it's right, states have the duty to ignore unconstitutional congressional actions, even if the Supreme Court has approved it. Because if the Supreme Court says the sun is the moon, it does not make it so. If the Supreme Court says intrastate commerce can be regulated under the authority to regulate interstate commerce, that's just as absurd as saying the sun is the moon. They are both wrong to the same degree. States have a duty to undo federal usurpation. Thomas goes on, he says, I, Thomas, continue to believe that we must temper our Commerce Clause jurisprudence and return to an interpretation better rooted in the clause's original understanding. The good news is that Thomas gets it. Congress here in this Brady Act was trying to use the Commerce Clause to tell state officials, county officials, that they had to do something under the Interstate Commerce Clause power, which is just absurd. It's a joke. Nobody can make that argument legitimately without just bastardizing the language of the Constitution. So Thomas gets it, but the bad news is he is one of a very few. So while the Supreme Court was correct in this case, Prince versus US, and we should applaud them for it, we have a long way to get where we should be. And it may be too late to even turn the ship around, but at least we need to know the ship is off course and we need to do everything we can to correct it. At the very least, we should not cooperate with the further misguided navigation towards ruin, I'm DK. Williams, and this has been the law episode 62: Prince versus the U.S. As always, we're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think again, Twitter at the law, Dkw and facebook.com/ the law with DK. Williams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.